Breaking news for the morning of Monday, October 19th. All spring 2021 classes, both graduate and undergraduate, will be online, according to an email sent to the Simmons community this morning. Administration has not made a decision, however, whether to allow more students to live on campus. The email reads, For the spring semester, all courses, both undergraduate and graduate, will be offered online. We are taking this proactive step to prepare for the worst case and to ensure the least disruption to our students and faculty, should the pandemic continue to get worse. While we are not yet ready to make a decision, the email continues, about the residential campus, rest assured that we are working hard every day to make the most responsible and safe decision possible. To stay updated with this developing story, visit SimmonsVoice.com. Welcome home. From Simmons Radio The Shark and The Simmons Voice, this is Welcome Home a show about news, culture, and stories that impact Simmons University. No matter where you are, we'll keep you updated on what's happening at home. Welcome back to Welcome Home. This is Katie Cole. I use she, her, hers pronouns. My name is Indelicado and I use they or she pronouns. My name's Sarah Carlin. I use she, her pronouns. And my name is Abby Verbeck and I use she, her, hers pronouns. And we have a lot to talk about today. So we're going to jump right in with Abby's story on the upcoming Eiffel Forum. Abby, take it away. Simmons recently announced the second annual Eiffel Forum. The event will take place virtually on Saturday, November 14th from 3 to 4 p.m. The forum's topic of discussion will be facing the hard truths. Washington Post columnist Michelle Norris, who is good friends with the Lake Gwen Eiffel, will moderate a conversation between Ava DuVernay and Sherilyn Eiffel, Gwen Eiffel's cousin and president and director counsel of the NAACP Legal Defense and Educational Fund. DuVernay is a writer, director, and producer, and she's most known for her work in the films Selma and A Wrinkle in Time, the documentary 13th, and the docuseries When They See Us. After the conversation between Norris, DuVernay, and Eiffel, Simmons president Lynn Perry Wooten will lead a community conversation on moving from discussion to action. The conversation will be limited to Simmons students, faculty, staff, and alumni. It's worth noting that the first Eiffel Forum last fall was not without controversy. Simmons alum and NBC News correspondent Rahima Ellis left a comment on the voice story about the Gwen Eiffel forever stamp, criticizing the event. She pointed out that Gwen Eiffel believed in holding truth to power, and yet there was no opportunity to ask questions or discuss the controversial hiring of Dean Brian Norman during the event. She also mentioned that, that the event was not streamed or available to the public. With the second forum being virtual this year and the community conversation, including alum taking place, it's unclear if Ellis will attend the event. With that being said, Brian Norman, Dean of the Eiffel College, wrote in a statement to The Voice that with the move to a digital format, the college can expand its vision of public engagement as Simmons becomes a part of the national conversation. Both Dean Norman and President Wooten expressed to The Voice how the Eiffel Forum could bring some much needed moral clarity during a very challenging year. So Abby, I actually have a question for those of us who don't know or who may be a little bit unfamiliar. Can you explain why Dean Brian Norman's hiring was so controversial? Sure. So as many people know, Gwen Eiffel was a pioneering Black female journalist 
who is one of Simmons' most notable alums. And in 2018, when Simmons became a university and split off into the four colleges, one of those colleges was named the Gwen Eiffel College of Media Arts and Humanities. During the hiring search for the inaugural dean, there were no candidates of color in the final round of the hiring process, leading to the hiring of Dean Brian Norman, who is a white cis man. The hiring of a white cis man for a college named after such a famous and pioneering black woman did not sit well with many people. So Abby, I was wondering why is the conversation with uh, President Wooten just closed to students, faculty and alumni of the school? Um, President Wooten did not say exactly why it would be limited to students, faculty, staff and alumni. However, the intention of the conversation is really to be specific to our community. So I think keeping that conversation limited to those people makes it more personal and allows us to be more specific in that conversation. Also something that I think has been interesting and I know kind of has been a conversation that's been going on that I've heard a little bit of is what is the line between honoring and tokenizing? And I'm hoping that facing the hard truths with this upcoming Eiffel form, maybe that will be addressed and at least that will be acknowledged in some way. Abby, thank you so much for covering that for us. I'm really looking forward to seeing how the event pans out. And now we are moving on to a piece that I did about Hurricane Delta, which is a hurricane that just hit the Gulf Coast last week. I talked to a student, Kelly Cotton, about her experiences. So let's take a listen. Working from home has provided yet another new challenge. Some students are now living in the path of natural disasters. Earlier this year, I reported on Simmons students in California surrounded by wildfires. Now, as we're over halfway through hurricane season, let's hear about Kelly Cotton, a junior at Simmons, taking classes from her bedroom in Alexandria, Louisiana. It is 1.55. I just left Target. I was going to stock up on like some stuff before the storm hits. Kelly's town of Alexandria, which is basically smack dab in the middle of the state, has already been hit by two hurricanes this semester. Hurricane Laura hit back on August 26th. It knocked out power to Kelly's house for two days. The cafe that she works at was closed for three days. They lost all of their frozen and refrigerated food. Their ice machine was broken for a week after the storm. Flash forward to October. Hurricane Delta hit Kelly on Friday, October 7th. I asked her to record some of her experience. It's 6.20, so it's been 20 minutes since the power went out, and it's back on. Um, I did lose Wi-Fi that time, which was a little bit stressful. Currently, I attached my laptop to my hotspot, and I've been downloading different files that I think I might need over the weekend, especially for my internship. I'm trying to get everything that I need to do that work. And I, I should really plug my laptop in. Um, it's 6.57 and I've made it home. Home, I've made it to my grandma's. My plan now, we still have power, so that's great. My plan is to set up the Wi-Fi because we never like restarted the router since the last hurricane because nobody over here really uses Wi-Fi. So I'm trying to set that up. So hopefully I can do a little bit of work for my internship before inevitably the power goes out. So it's now 
I know it's been a long break since the last time I said anything, but nothing's really changed or gone on. Um, All that's really happening is there's a lot of flash flood emergencies. They've moved from flash flood warnings to emergencies because, like, it's it's flooding everywhere. Um, My friend sent me a video from outside of her apartment where the water's, like, almost at her door. So her and her roommates are moving all of their stuff upstairs, which is kind of making me nervous about my own condo because I didn't I didn't think of anything like that. I just hope my cats stay dry. Hurricane Delta was record-breaking, not because of its scope or the damage it did, but because 2020 now holds the record for most hurricanes to make landfall in a single season. That's according to an article published by the Weather Channel. It broke the record set in the 1916 season where nine hurricanes had made landfall. And Delta is the fourth hurricane this season to make landfall in Louisiana. Good morning. It's 1125. Um, I've been up for a little bit. It's really sunny out. It's weird because it kind of feels like it never even happened because of how sunny it is. Um, I looked out at the front of the house and there's a big branch down and there's some branches on the terrace outside of my room and the bayou in the back is flooded a lot but um that's all the damage I can see when I leave the house I'll see if there's any more damage but um for now that's all. Simmons students across the country are facing real threats from natural disasters and it has the potential to disrupt their education. You heard earlier that Kelly was downloading documents for her internships and classes so she could have them saved on her computer in case she lost Wi-Fi. Kelly says that her professors have been understanding about late assignments, but having late assignments backed up on a to-do list can add more stress to an already tense combination of facing a natural disaster, the COVID-19 pandemic, and other personal issues students may be grappling with. Kelly is lucky. Hurricane Delta didn't do as much damage as Hurricane Laura did earlier in the season. But the season isn't over. The season lasts until November. So there's still more time for hurricanes to make landfall, to disrupt Kelly's education, and potentially her livelihood. For Simmons Radio The Shark and The Simmons Voice, this is Katie Cole. Thank you for that, Katie. That was really, that was amazing. What is, has Simmons, like, made any sort of statement to students who are dealing with um, the hurricanes right now? Like, any sort of, you know, reaching out with specific resources or um, something along those lines for those students who are having to, um, you know, go through school and this at the same time? I haven't heard that Simmons has reached out to the students. I know that professors have been lenient and... Um, have been very understanding, but I'm not sure if the university itself has done any moves to reach out to those students with specific resources. I'm not really sure like what particular resources they could offer either. Like I'm not actually sure what that would look like, but it is interesting that that was not um, mentioned at all in your in your interviews. It's really interesting to be hearing about how Kelly was downloading assignments and how so many people are having to adapt this semester whether it be because of the fact that we're in a pandemic or like you were covering Katie multiple times this semester, natural disasters, we're all doing our best and it's difficult for teachers too. So later this season, we'll be talking to some professors about their transition online and adapting to this weird world that we're living in. 
specifically Erica Mora's radio operations and podcasting course. Now that course is exactly what it says. It is podcasting, radio, and it is so based on the equipment that you have available to you. You have the comm lab, you have the radio station, you have mics, you have software, so many things available to you. And how do you make a class that is reliant on using things that aren't yours and using technology that's not yours that you don't readily have available to you to make audio? And I mean, obviously, there was a lot more time to prepare the semester for how that class will go as opposed to being home for spring break and then not having anything with you. So it seems like this semester is going a little bit more smoothly, but still obviously a very difficult transition to make. So last semester for the radio operations and podcasting course, one of the projects that was assigned after everyone was sent home was documenting life in the pandemic and learning how to use your phone to record and use your closet for a little sound booth, which is what we're all doing right now. So I talked with junior political science major Lennon Sherburn about their experiences in the course, going from software, studio, equipment, and to being in the closet with their iPhone. Hey, Lennon, how's it going? Oh, pretty well. Just sitting in the closet. I feel like I'm back in 2013, 15, all of the, all of the closeted years. It's fine. Oh, 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 I, I get it. I see. <laughs> <laughs> I had no idea what you were talking about. I was like... Uh, it was, did you like make forts in your closet? I was, it took me, it took me a second to grasp that, but I appreciate that joke. I think it was fantastic. Thank you for that. It's all right. It's okay. I thought it was funny. I did too. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness. This is So Lennon, can you tell me a little bit about what the process was moving that class format to online? I know that you said that you were under blankets and using your closet and just kind of making things in different ways that you could, but I'd love to hear sure. About your process it was definitely a complete 180 I I was so I was finally getting in the groove of you know getting getting my setup being in the studio um and then I, I went back home to Maine and it was really just sort of fending for myself I went from a mic to everything was recorded on my on my phone um and then uploaded to my laptop um so just built-in mics there and then my sound cave was literally uh, an ironing board with a blanket on top of it um, and I was I was very precariously perching everything and making sure I was in the center of the room so there was no noise um, but it was it was really a, a makeshift process I'm grateful that I did have at least some time um, in the studio so I got to know audition and you know editing software and I could do that on my laptop but it was definitely a huge huge learning curve so I know that some of the projects and assignments for that class shifted, obviously, because of how much everything changed. And one of the assignments was, can you explain it to me? Was it like capturing a day in the life in the pandemic or how how is the assignment framed? Sure. So it was a pretty broad assignment um, and it was really just an audio documentary format of your life right now in COVID. Um, and a lot of different students kind of took it in a, in a number of different ways. The way I interpreted it was, you know, what is, what does my life look like now comparatively to what it was three, six, 10 months ago. Um, so I really dug in and focused on that feeling of every single day. It's the same in how almost um, in, in my head that got. Right. No, that totally makes sense. I feel like everything has just been blurring together and, and kind of it's all over the place. I feel like I don't even need to explain it because we all are in the same boat. So I think that this is a good moment to play this piece for you. 
I've been spending a lot of time thinking about time lately. How a month and a half can feel so short, but everything I had before then seems so far away. I don't really do well with downtime. I usually have at least three things going on at once. And now, I'm lucky if I have one. My days feel like an even blander version of the 1993 classic Groundhog Day. The one where Bill Murray wakes up and lives the same day over and over and over again. For ten years. I don't do much anymore, aside from school and skateboard. But even that stopped for a while after I got my concussion. Holy shit. The thing about a concussion is that you can't do anything. No screens, no skateboards, nothing. So all I could do was sit and think and think and think about the school I wasn't doing, about the miles I wasn't running, about the people I wasn't seeing, about the pandemic that isn't ending over and over and over again. And I felt useless, so stuck in my head because of my own head. Everything outside of my brain hurt. My existence felt nauseating. I think I just threw up acid. Unbearable. <laughs> I just wanted to be. And I just had to sit with it and wait for things to get better. It's been a couple weeks and my concussion is gone. I've gotten back to school and running and skateboarding. Things are a little better. And while the world still hurts, while the world is still viscerally hurting together. I know that time is passing. That like my concussion, as much as this pandemic is debilitating and feels like it will last forever, it won't. Days will keep coming and the clock will keep ticking. And I'll take each moment one at a time. That was so incredible. And I feel like you just captured time passing or feeling like it's not passing, however you want to interpret it, in such a perfect way. I don't know. I felt like I was there with you, which is what the power of of audio and radio is. Although there is that power with audio, as we talked about in the introduction to this segment, we're all making do with what we have. That being said, things happen. Some of the audio in my original conversation with Lennon got a little bit funky, so they sent me a voice memo answering a question about what it was like listening back to the piece that you just heard. Let's take a listen. So I think looking back on my piece, six to seven months after I made it, the the context surrounding it is completely different. And so the feelings I have toward it um, are definitely in it when I was making it. Everything felt very personal and everything that happened, um, you know, whether it be it rained one day or I got a concussion, felt like it had a huge impact um, 
on my day and how long the day felt and you know the 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 isolation was just so much more nuclear and now you know almost almost to november so much in the world has gone on so much chaos has come about um that the feeling of you know not knowing and being afraid feels so much more public and so much more universal um, that it almost makes my experience with, you know, something like a concussion feel so much more trivial, um, even though those same feelings of isolation and um, chaos are still there. So I think it's just very, very different contextually um, and puts in perspective what has gone on over the past um, several months and what's been going on in the world. Thank you, Iz and Lennon, for that uh, segment. That was really, that was really awesome. Um, I know that it's been hard for us um, on many levels, everyone at Simmons, to adjust to this new, as people call it, the new normal. Um, but it is uh, very comforting to hear others' stories and others' experiences in that regard. And just a quick reminder, if you, uh, like Lennon, would like your story told on the podcast, we would absolutely love to hear from you. There are a lot of ways to get involved. You can record your own segment and submit it to us. You can reach out to us maybe with a story idea, something that you'd like to see covered. Or another way you can get involved um, is write a story about it for The Voice. And if you would like to do so, we can feature it on the podcast. And just like Hannah Madden, you can also maybe do a mass politics moment. Maybe not like Hannah Madden, because that's kind of her stick, though. So don't take her beat. Don't bite her beat. If you want to make your own segment, record it, uh, or write a piece for The Voice, or maybe submit a story idea to us, we would love to hear it. All of our contact information will be in the description of this podcast, but The Voice's email is voice at simmons.edu, and the Simmons Radio of the Sharks email is simmonsradio at gmail.com. And now let's hear that amazing segment that Sarah was talking about. It's time for our Mass Poly Minute with Hannah Madden. What's up? I'm Hannah Madden, back again with your Massachusetts politics moments from this week. The Boston Teachers Union announced on Thursday that they are suing to block Boston public schools to try and stop from reopening in person and requiring educators to return to campuses. Negotiations with Mayor Marty Walsh and BPS have apparently been pretty grating, and union officials have filed a temporary restraining order against the city and BPS in protest of the dangerous conditions they feel are being forced upon students and teachers. Keep an eye out for new developments in this Marty versus Teachers Union showdown. I think it could get interesting, especially considering a potential re-election campaign. Earlier this week, the Supreme Court cleared the way for the Trump administration to wrap up the U.S. Census early, which has officials in mass worried that many Bay Staters will go uncounted. The census count was supposed to wrap up at the end of October, but the court has now ruled that Trump can end the census count now, about two weeks early. Census officials from Commerce Secretary Wilbur Ross's office say that the response rate in Massachusetts is 99.9% and that there's no cause for concern, but Secretary of State William Galvin came out swinging this week, saying that the number given by officials is, quote, an obvious fiction and that he, quote, didn't know what Wilbur Ross was smoking, but it must be good. Strong words from an already controversial Beacon Hill figure. My own thoughts about Mr. Bill Galvin aside, I'll give him this much. I couldn't have said that better myself. And on Friday, Congressman Joe Kennedy III said that his Senate campaign improperly spent $1.5 million of donations intended for the general election during the final weeks of his unsuccessful primary challenge against Senator Ed Markey. 
According to federal campaign finance law, candidates are strictly prohibited from using money raised for the general election on expenses for the primary. In a statement to the Boston Globe, Congressman Kennedy said he did not know the campaign had been improperly spending general election funds during the primary and that the violation came to his attention shortly after the primary election. Kennedy's finance staff are claiming that this was an honest mistake, but as a seasoned campaign finance worker, all I'll say is that in my experience, though I'm not great at math, I've managed to never accidentally spend $1.5 million. Certainly an expensive mistake to make. Well, those are your Massachusetts politics moments from this week. I'm Hannah Madden, and I'll catch you next time. Like, it's, it's basic campaign finance. Absurd. This is tough. He was raised in America's political family. <laughs> I, on behalf of Irish Catholic redheads everywhere, I am so sorry. That's, <laughs> that's filthy. That's foul. JFK, you're bringing a bad name to Irish Catholics. That's all I'll say. JFK or Joe Kennedy? <laughs> JFK! Oh my God, jail! I have had JFK on the brain today. I'm sorry. Um, Joe Kennedy, you're you're bringing you're bringing down the general um, opinion of Irish Catholics. Not that it was very high, but just saying. As a personal note, for anyone who doesn't know, Sarah Carlin's father, Michael, looks very similar to Joe Kennedy the Third. If you look at a young picture of Sarah Carlin's dad, he looks very very similar. Um, if so, anyone is interested in this, please uh, Twitter DM me at Sarah Carlin, S-A-R-C-A-R-L-O-N. <laughs> My dad would never embezzle money from a campaign, though. He's a good man. I don't, I don't think he embezzled it. <laughs> <laughs> My dad would never mismanage campaign funds. <laughs> yeah, mismanagement. And now let's hear Sarah's conversation with Samaya Ali, an artist from Simmons. So I am here chatting with Sumeya Ali. Sumeya, if you'd like to introduce yourself. Uh, my name is Sumeya. My pronouns are she, hers. I'm a junior right now, my first semester junior year, and I'm currently studying sociology. So to start off, how would you personally describe your artistic style? Um, that's actually a good question because I don't even know how I would describe it. <laughs> but I think like it's going to sound weird, but I talk to colors essentially. Mm. Like I kind of just communicate through color. So, like, for example, like, right now I'm painting with black and it's, like, helping me feel grounded. To answer your question about, like, how I would describe my art style, I would just say, like, really visual language. Like, that's mm. what I would use to describe it. What's your process behind kind of talking to colors? It's kind of just, like, in the moment. Mm. Like, what I like to do is I just, like, have something playing in the background. Like, whether it's, like, a TV show or, like, an yeah. album that I really like. And I just kind of like to get into the zone. And the way I do that is just kind of... um like really grounding myself and feeling calm so that I can actually understand like what the colors are saying to me so blue doesn't always mean the same thing every time I come to it do you know what I mean like sometimes it'll be like dark blue and I'll be like oh that really reminds me of like when I was at an ocean yeah like when I was in a pool or like navy blue like like for someone's hoodie or something like that so there's like different um emotions that are tied to it and they're not the same every time but I think um that's kind of like what my artistic process is like it's very emotional in that sense that um I use it as like a form of expression and how like how did you get started doing art so I've always been like interested in self-expressions but with painting like visual art I started that with um, in high school there's this program in Boston it's called Artists for Humanity and they're like this um, non-profit organization like you would come in like after school um three days a week like three to six mm -hmm. so you just come in and paint I was in the paint studio for a while 
So I was just like literally just coming in and painting every day. Nice. And that's really how I got like my skills developed. When you come into there like as a high schooler and you're taught with um other like professional artists. So like mm-hmm. my bosses slash my mentors were literally like people who were selling their paintings for like twenty thousand like a piece, you know? So that's, that's so kind of, cool. Like, yeah, exactly. mm-hmm. yeah. So you can imagine like what that got me to thinking of like like in high school I'm like just yeah. really amazed with like the fact that people can actually like um make a living just off of like what's inside their head and who do you have any like specific artist inspirations I like to look at like what my community is creating because like there's like people my age right now even in Boston that are doing very very amazing things I'm thinking of Mitsuka I'm not sure if you know them I do yes so that's like an amazing like example of like art that's being created in the community by the community for the community Mm. so I like to just like look at like look to them for um inspiration rather than like someone like some dead old white guy (laughs) you know what I mean yeah for sure As someone who grew up in Boston, do you find the city making its way into your work at all? Not as much as I would like it to, Mm. definitely. Because when I first started painting, I wasn't even really thinking critically about what I wanted to paint. I was just getting my skills up. And now that I'm like actually more in control of what I want to paint and like I have more of a say on what I want my artistic vision to look like. Mm -hmm. I think now it's more about like self-expression and like um, tying that to a larger community. So I'm definitely excited to see where that like where Boston fits into that and like my vision of Boston at least like I really always thought about Boston as like a grounding community like a rooted community. Do you feel like the pandemic has impacted you as an artist? The pandemic really made me realize that I was an artist Mm. like it made me like I was like wait I don't actually care about anything else. (laughs) Like before the pandemic I did not have my own website for my art. I didn't have my own print shop so that's just like it's really um helped me come into my identity as an artist heavily. Do you feel like social media has been an advantage to you during the pandemic? Mm -hmm. It can be like both an advantage and a disadvantage because like there's always like the aspect of like comparing yourself to other people. Sure. But so good to connect to other people through social media. Every time like someone leaves a comment for me on like my art or like literally leaves a message saying like, oh, this painting like made me feel this way. It's crazy thinking that someone actually like took the moment like out of their day to like perceive my art and like to actually be engaged with it. So I think like for me, social media is like definitely helped me understand like how people are engaging with my art. So what are you working on right now? I'm just working on like a couple of different things. I um I've been doing this like photography project with um, Muslim Justice League, like a photojournalism type of thing. Yeah. So that's what I've been working on now. I wanted to do like multimedia projects for a while. That's where my heart has been going. For me, what I'm very connected to is like Black Muslim women and their divinity and like looking at them as like divine feminine beings. So I would take a photo that represents that. And then I would print that photo out on a very, very large like canvas, like two to three or like three to four. And then I would like paint on it with like either watercolor or like ink or some type of media. And that's how it would be multimedia to me. That's the thing about, like, being a creative is, like, you have all these ideas, but it's just, like... It's hard to pin down mm -hmm. which one. And, like, the resources also is also, like, a big part. Sumeya can be found on Instagram at sumitthecreative, and her website is sumicollective.com. Keep an eye out for what she has in store for the future. And now for a story about the class of 2024 with Abby. Abby, let's hear it. The class of 2024 is just about halfway through its first semester at Simmons, but obviously due to the pandemic, this has been a far from normal time to start college. 
I recently spoke with Alicia Lapola, the Assistant Dean of First Year Programs, and she told me how many first years experienced the college selection process virtually even before they started at Simmons. So that's all the way back in March. The accepted Students' Day events and the tours that most students would take to decide which school they want to attend in the spring couldn't happen because of COVID-19. So the admissions and student affairs teams have had to get really creative with how to introduce these students to the Simmons community. Orientation sessions were virtual in the summer and so are many other events and panels. Lapola and her team realized that they would need to offer more resources and programming than they normally would to help students connect with one another. Those efforts included the creation of the shark sites, asynchronous forum discussions, the creation of 13 first year mentors and first year Fridays, as well as being very intentional about how the Simmons course is used. For anyone who has taken the Simmons course, you know, you talk a lot about resources on campus and adjusting to college life in both in the physical sense, but these students aren't on campus. Lapola said this programming is especially important because of the makeup of the first year class. 47% of the members of the class of 2024 identify as first-generation students, and 52% are Alana students. For those who aren't familiar with the term Alana, it stands for Asian, Latinx, African, and Native American. Lapola said this is a big jump for Simmons, so the university needs to make sure those students are connecting with other students, finding community, and getting the resources they need, and they need to see themselves reflected in both the curriculum and the leadership at Simmons. I also spoke with Ruth Ann Prescott, a first-year student from New York. Prescott has never been to campus and noted that she has already accepted the fact that she's not going to have a complete or typical college experience. But she also said she feels very supported by Simmons and especially by her faculty. She did dual enrollment in high school, so she's pretty familiar with the college process and dynamic. And she said she has never seen professors make time for their students the way that all of her current professors do. Despite the jump in diversity that Lapola talked to me about, Prescott's biggest critique was still diversity. She told me she wished Simmons would reach out to more students from outside Massachusetts because many of her classmates live in Mass. She emphasized that more people need to know about Simmons and that it shouldn't just be a hidden gem. What do you all think of the class of 2024 and what they're going through right now? I'm honestly so glad to hear that Ruthann has had a good experience at Simmons so far with her professors and with the environment overall. Have you, I know Abby that you're doing a profile on the president of the class of 2024 and have talked with other first year students. Is this kind of a general feeling that people are feeling supported and like this is going as well as it could go? It really seems like uh, students' feelings are full spectrum right now. Ruthann talked about being able to get in touch with some of the older students at Simmons to connect with really easily through Um, her mentor right now, but not every student does go that step to ask someone to introduce them to someone else, especially when it's virtual, it's not as organic of a relationship. So it really depends. And when I talked to the president of class of 2024, she also expressed to me that uh, right now, if you are going out of your way to seek out these resources and meet these people, your experience is going to be drastically different than people who aren't doing that. Kind of along that same vein, I was wondering if you got a sense from Alicia Lapola if, um, you know, you mentioned like the first year mentors and first year Fridays and stuff like that. I was wondering if you got a sense from her of how well attended these things are, maybe if they are, you know, putting in the time and effort to like really advertise this to first years, um, sort of something along that line. 
Alicia said the attendance has been either really high or really low. So I think they're kind of learning from the events as they go and to see what, what students want to learn, what they want to hear, what type of events they're looking for. Um, she also said that these events are going to have to continue for a while. When students eventually do go to campus, these students will have to be oriented again because orientation over the summer when it was virtual didn't cover all of those bases like alcohol and consent and those types of things that you talk about when you first get to campus and orientation. So these students are far from, far from done with these events, conversations and orientations. Going off of what you said about not being done with events and things like that, I know that we recently got an email about Friends and Family Weekend, which is coming up. Does anyone have any idea about how that's going to work and what that could look like while we're all online? I think that's a really interesting question because the what are the main appeals of that event usually when it's on campus? You know, people your family members get to see your space on campus and how your life has changed so far. But for those students who haven't moved out yet, um, you know, we'll see if there's any interest in talking to the administrators at Simmons or not. Wow, college is honestly nothing like the way any of us thought it would be with this pandemic. And the other day I was thinking about the, the movie Pitch Perfect and how college is literally so different than I thought it would be, even without the pandemic. I'm talking pre-pandemic. Is are you trying to get us to your piece? You know what, Katie, I am. I, I am. I will fully tell you that I, yeah, I am. All right. This week is wrote about um, hooking up during a pandemic. So is, let's hear all about it. So we're however far into the pandemic we are right now. I've honestly lost track of the days. People want to get back to dating and hooking up and being on these apps and getting physical with other people. It makes sense. Obviously, safest is being your own partner and not hooking up with people, but that's just not realistic for everyone. Julia Marcus is an epidemiologist at Harvard Medical School, and she wrote a piece in The Atlantic about how shaming for, for people not social distancing just doesn't work. And we know from years of experience with different things that abstinence-based only approaches simply don't work. Um, sex is a human need and people are going to do it no matter what. So we might as well provide information on how to do it in the safest way possible without creating shame. Is That's a really great point. I know there's definitely been a problem of shame right now with people, you know, either feeling shame and feeling guilty for going out and hooking up during a pandemic or um, people shaming other people they know who might be single, might not be in a relationship, stuff like that. Shame is super harmful and can be really hard to navigate. And if people are feeling shame, they might not be honest with the people they should be honest with. Right, exactly. Kinsey Institute research fellow Justin Leheimer brought this up and he said that we need to be careful about when we're talking about this kind of thing because heaping more stigma onto sex is just extremely counterproductive because there already is so much shame surrounding it. And there's been so much information coming out about how to actually hook up safely, like actions you can take. And the New York City public health officials actually put out a fact sheet with some suggestions about wearing masks, avoiding group sex, and literally suggesting, and this is a direct quote, making it a little kinky in terms of like using social distancing, barriers, covers, whatever. So there's that information out there about using physical distance and face coverings during sexual encounters, but there really isn't information on how to have the conversations about what precautions to take if you're hooking up with someone. 
I know some folks that I've talked to have felt that way, and I know I have. I wanted to figure this out, so I reached out to Amanda Dennis, who is a communications professor at UConn, whose research focuses on communication in interpersonal relationships, and we compiled a list of five tips for you to go into your possible pandemic sexual, sexual, sexual ventures with. Jumping right into it, determine your non-negotiables. You're doing your hookup for you, so be firm with yourself in regards to your needs and wants in order to have a safe and pleasurable experience. Communicating non-negotiables is a principle that Dennis says comes up regularly in her work around communicating sexual wants and needs, but that it can apply to conversations about having safer sex. For example, thinking about what you need to know about your partner in order to enjoy the sexual interaction. Once you become firm in the things that are central to yourself, it can become less scary to talk about them. Which leads us to number two, getting right into the conversation. It can obviously feel really weird and uncomfortable to get into the hard stuff from the beginning, like saying, oh, how many people are you seeing? Do you have any health concerns? Like, tell me your entire life story to make sure that this is going to be a good match. But as we've heard a thousand times, way too many times, that these are unprecedented situations that we're living in. And the more uncertainties that there are about having a sexual situation, the more threatening it can feel to talk about. And when people are nervous to talk about these kinds of things, a lot of reliance goes on to physical cues and body language, which we just don't have while we're communicating online with each other. So it's important to just get right into it. And if anyone gives you a hard time for talking about what makes you feel comfortable, swipe left. Number three, take advantage of dating apps and technologies that you're using. Having that barrier to clearly communicate your non-negotiables without having the awkward pressure of being in person. And although you may miss out on some of the body language cues by talking online, the stress that comes with having a face-to-face conversation is eliminated. According to Dennis, integrating your needs into an online conversation could be easier if you're feeling uneasy about having those more serious talks that you typically would be having later on. Number four, evaluate the risks. Yours, theirs, the people who are in each of your bubbles. There are some questions that you probably should be asking before you hook up with someone, like how many people are you in contact per day? How regularly are you being tested? Have you been exposed? Are you at higher risk of exposure? Things like that. And number five, the most important thing, if you don't take anything else away from this, make sure that you're explicit in communicating that getting a COVID-19 test is not a guarantee for anything physical to take place. Dennis said that getting tested may be consenting to seeing where things go, but it is in no way consenting to get physical. And if you don't know, consent is ongoing. It can be revoked at any time and there are no guarantees. And honestly, if you think about it, getting tested for COVID is not that much different than other things that one might do to get ready for a sexual situation. It just seems more scary and threatening because it is a new test and maybe it's not as easy as some other things because you have to get your brain tickled a little bit. But anyways, communication is key. And as Dennis pointed out, being confident in what you need is really central to having a fulfilling encounter. That is so helpful, Is I'm so glad that you and other journalists have decided to report on this topic because I think it's important for this information to be accessible and out there and not taboo. Very true, very true. And a huge shout out and thank you to Professor Amanda Dennis from University of Connecticut for her time giving me some insight to create these tips.
is that all for today folks i think that's all for today we did it we did it that was a lot that was a packed episode it truly was thank you so much for listening we really appreciate you um we miss you and we miss the simmons community can't wait to be back home with you but until then there are plenty of ways to get involved with welcome home so reach out to the shark or the voice our contact information is in the description of this episode also, a quick shout out to Lennon Sherburn and Hannah Madden for their contributions to this episode. See you next week. One, two, <laughs> two three. Welcome home. Why did we do that so slow? <laughs> it sounded like a death march. Can we do Imagine that? One week it went one, two, three, and then the intro music to iCarly played instead. <laughs> <laughs> Live life, breathe. Welcome Home was created, produced, and edited by Isandella Cotto, Katie Cole, Abby Vervak, and Sarah Carlin. The theme music for this podcast was created by Matthew Harrison, a.k.a. Maddie Sun. The cover art for our podcast was made by Carly Dickler. Special thanks to everyone who contributed in the making of this podcast, through writing articles, conducting interviews, creating segments, and so much more. This has been a production of Simmons Radio The Shark and The Simmons Voice.